The hazards of climate change can be disturbing to contemplate, but we don't have the luxury of ignoring them. The scientific and investment communities both play a role in urging society to embrace climate solutions. Welcome to Bernstein's Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate nonprofits and individuals striving to invest purposefully and with a mission. I'm Travis Allen, Senior Investment Strategist and Head of Responsible Investing Allocations at Bernstein. I'm joined today by Radley Horton, a scientist with Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, whose pioneering research is shaping our modern understanding of climate change. Welcome, Radley. Thanks. It's great to be here. And on the phone, we're joined by Dave Wheeler, Senior Research Analyst of Thematic and Sustainable Equities at Alliance Bernstein. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me, Travis. So in our first two episodes, we talked about the rising demand for responsible investing and the fact that investors increasingly would like to see their values reflected in their portfolios. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that many investors care deeply about addressing in their portfolios, which is climate change. So maybe, Bradley, we'll start with you, because each month we hear, it seems, that one month is harder than another, or we're setting new records. Um, and investors, I think, have a hard time putting that into some sort of historical context. So maybe from your research that you've done, you can give us some idea of how to put that in perspective. Sure. Yeah, I think it's challenging to unpack the difference between weather, the sort of random fluctuations from one day or week to the next, with this changing signal as greenhouse gas concentrations rise due to human activities. Temperatures on average are going up. Sea levels are going up. That is shifting the statistics. So we're getting more frequent and more intense of various types of extremes. So weather is part of the story, but climate change is another part. But you're right, just looking at some things that have happened recently, thinking, for example, about the heat wave in Western Europe at the end of July. Paris didn't just set an all-time temperature record when they hit 108 or 109 degrees. They shattered the all-time record high on any day by about 3 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That's not easy to do, especially for a city with long records. Three nearby countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany, also, and for those three countries, they set their all-time uh, temperature records. So this really is unprecedented. And that heat wave uh, moved from Europe up into the Arctic, actually, and in Greenland at the end of July and in early August. For just the second time in history, we saw the vast majority of that Greenland ice sheet experiencing some melting, even the high elevation places two miles above sea level. Arctic sea ice, the ice that's sitting atop the Arctic Ocean, now it looks like there's a good chance we're going to have a record low, both for the aerial extent of that sea ice coverage, but also the volume which combines its thickness because that ice is thinning. So those are just a few examples of what we're observing. More heavy rain events, more frequent coastal flooding. Weather's part of the story, but climate change is loading the dice, shifting the baselines, and in some cases, 
actually changing the nature of weather itself by modifying things like the jet stream. And Radley, that's not something that's just happening this summer, right? You gave those recent examples, but maybe talk about how things have been changing over the last couple decades. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm sure uh, you and other investors listening will, will resonate with that point a lot, because we can't just look at the recent snippet, right? To really see the signal, we need to integrate over both longer periods of time and larger areas. You can't just cherry pick a couple regions. But the signals I just described in terms of a shift in climate are actually more powerful when we average over more time and a bigger region. So just to give you a few examples, if we look along the U.S. coastline, we're now seeing these nuisance flooding events where it might be a sunny day outside, but coastal communities are not able to take their normal roads home. They're getting water in their basements. Uh, Businesses can't open. Some of those events are happening five or 10 times more often than they did two generations ago, just because of this six inches or so of sea level rise, which sounds like nothing over the last century. Similarly, if we look across uh, at the frequency of extreme heat events relative to extreme cold events, we're now getting about twice as many record-breaking high temperatures for a day as low. Those are trends that hold up not just in individual regions, but across countries and regions where we have large amounts of data. So you're absolutely right. Individual years and certain locations will continue to be cold occasionally. But from a risk management perspective, as we're thinking about investment decisions, the climate baseline has already shifted. And if we don't adjust to that, uh, we're going to be ill-positioned at best. Well, that's fascinating. And, And Dave, maybe if we can turn to you for a moment, Uh, So what is, you know, all of the changes that we're seeing in in climate mean for you as a sustainable investor in putting together a portfolio of equities? Well, it means a lot. It's it's kind of at the top of our list of the focus of our investments. Our sustainable global fund, we invest in companies that are addressing the world's largest environmental and social challenges. um, And climate change is certainly at the top of that list. And so how do you invest in climate change solutions? It's probably easy to put them into two buckets, mitigation and adaptation. Um, Mitigation is all about the need to reduce carbon emissions in order to slow the climate impacts that we're seeing and that Radley has described. You know, if you step back and think about it, the lion's share of carbon emissions come from from three places. It's power generation, it's transportation, and it's buildings for heating and cooling. So we look to invest in companies whose products can reduce those large sources of uh, carbon emissions. So examples would be things like renewable energy, energy efficiency, and electric vehicles. So you can kind of think of the world as needing to undergo an energy transition and really decarbonize these sources of energy. Um, Adaptation that I mentioned as the second bucket of, of climate change solutions And that's really about managing the effects of climate change. Uh, Again, things like higher temperatures, extreme weather, flooding, need for resiliency. Um, So examples in here, we look to invest in companies that are providing solutions like water scarcity, resilience against flooding. um, And another area is agricultural products that are more resilient against heat and drought. So, the world needs large-scale solutions to address climate change challenges, and, and we look to invest in large companies that are going to provide those solutions at, at scale. Yeah, so in terms of when, when you're looking at those companies, 
How has the landscape in terms of the ability to invest in this way changed over the last, say, 10 10 or 15 years? Are there more companies that are providing the types of products and services that you talk about? And and so how are corporations reacting to this huge challenge, Dave? I think technology has been a friend to addressing this challenge. Um, You know, certainly certainly climate change is scary, but there is a good news story here, and and it's technology-based. Uh, renewable energy is probably the, the prime example. I used to invest in, and manage a renewable energy fund 10 years ago. And back then, wind power and solar power were very expensive. There was a cost to trying to go renewable. Uh, but that has changed dramatically. Uh, wind and solar power prices have come down significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. So today, new wind projects can supply power for three, four, five cents a kilowatt hour. And if you look around the world, that, that's up to two times cheaper than traditional fossil fuel-based power sources. So economics are now in favor of renewable energy, and, and, and that's as a result of improvements in technology. Solutions are easier to deploy today because of the improved economics. So an example of this, one name that we like and uh, is a company called Vestas Wind Power. They provide wind turbines and other equipment for uh, wind projects. And we think they're the best company in the world uh, at making wind equipment in terms of technology and lowest cost. And as you think about wind power, why is it a good investment? We think there's going to be dramatic growth in wind power adoption because of that cost advantage that I mentioned. And so wind power currently supplies less than 2% of the world's power. We think that will expand to 15% over the next 20 years. And Vestas is a, is a great way to play that growth. Important to the projections that that you talk about in terms of wind power, Dave, uh, I think is some of the work that Radley has done at uh, Lamont Observatory in forecasting the potential impact of climate change over time. And so, Radley, maybe we can come back to you to have you tell us a little bit more about what your models are suggesting in terms of you know climate impact going forward and what type of conversations that's starting to create with institutional investors, with policymakers and other stakeholders. Sure. Yeah, I think there's really two ways to think about the story, and I'm really excited to hear uh, the evolution and advances that we just heard about. I think there's still a lot of room for advance across society and thinking about the things that are basically bound to happen. You know, I referred earlier to the idea that we're, we've had six inches of sea level rise. Under the best case scenario, we're locked into another foot or two this century. That's, that's the best we can hope for. But I think there are still a lot of instances in society where we still can find sectors that haven't thought about the direct ways they'd be vulnerable to those kind of changes, direct in the sense, will a build, will an asset be underwater more often, literally, than it used to be in the past, for example. So I think the first step is to systemically look across assets and operations and look at some of these direct effects of climate change that is basically locked in, the high confidence projections, a foot or two of sea level rise, couple degrees of additional warming, sadly, is basically bound to happen. We hear a lot about, you know, that we're only 10 years or so away from a a critical tipping point. And so how how should people think about that or or have some perspective around that? Yeah, so that's really challenging. That's, That's really kind of the second dimension to this, which is how do we consider the things from a risk management perspective that remain a little less certain, even though they're looking more likely, some of those tipping points, but that if they were to happen, 
could be A, catastrophic, and B, unleash harder to predict secondary impacts. So to give a couple examples of that, people may have heard about uh, Arctic sea ice loss. I referred to the fact that we're seeing a lot uh, this year. The volume of Arctic sea ice has decreased by about 75% in late summer, mm. just over the last, essentially last generation or so, a little more. Um, no climate models predicted that that ice would disappear that fast. So when we run a climate model, not just for the future, but over a historical period, increasing the greenhouse gases in 1980, 85, 90, to match what actually happened, our models underestimate how quickly that change would happen. And that concerns us because there's the potential for feedbacks, tipping points in the climate system. What that basically means is the idea that if you nudge the system, it may change in unpredictable ways. Uh, so with Arctic sea ice, the classic example, um, it's essentially been a white surface, very effective at reflecting sunlight back into space. If through heating the atmosphere and heating the ocean, you melt some of that ice, you replace it with one of the darkest surfaces that there is. Very effective, the ocean at absorbing sunlight. That in itself leads to more heating and more melting. So where are the tipping points where if we nudge the beast too much, increasing greenhouse gases or temperatures, we unleash a set of effects where even if we could somehow back off our carbon emissions, we might continue to see the ice go and more warming the planet. Very scary stuff. Other examples are our coral reefs, which now appear to already be near the brink and with just the amount of warming that we've had so far. Uh, so as you say, how do you message to people that um, every additional year with more greenhouse gases, um, there's a growing risk of unpredictable changes. So it, it, it makes the case that we need to immediately reduce our emissions, even as we can't in a precise way say exactly when those tipping points will, will hit. What we can say for certain is the further we push the system by increasing greenhouse gases, the bigger the potential for some of those kind of surprises. Thank you. So Dave, along those lines, are there any sources of hope, right? That's a pretty, you know, dire set of statistics and projections that we just heard from Radley. You know, what are some of the potential solutions? Since we do have a window before we get to the tipping point, what could corporations, and perhaps both of you can talk about, what can we as individuals be doing to do our part? Well, I think there's rising recognition across corporations, but I'd also say countries and cities about the, uh, the challenges of climate change. And as a result of that, I think there's increased willingness and desire to invest in solutions. Radley mentioned that um, the effects go far beyond just uh, temperature and things like flooding and uh, water scarcity are, are a couple areas that are getting worse over time. I mean, you may have heard, you know, 1 billion people around the world lack access to clean drinking water, but 4 billion people around the world live with severe water scarcity at least one month of the year. And climate change is only adding to that water stress. Prime example is last year, Cape Town in South Africa, you know, a city of 4 million people came very, very close to running out of water. And that's because of changes in rain uh, patterns. And basically it hadn't rained in Cape Town in three years. And there's going to be more Cape Towns in the coming years ahead. But can these challenges be addressed is the question. And, and the answer is yes. Um, Cape Town, for example, is now moving forward to invest in solutions like water 
treatment and recycling and, and efficiency of water use. One company that we have in the portfolio is called Xylem, and they're the leading water technology that provides equipment for water treatment, recycling, and efficient use. And so when we think about, you know, uh, trying to address these challenges, we look for companies like Xylem that are going to, at large scale, help address water scarcity, help address flooding, and we see powerful long-term demand for their products over time. So Dave, one question that I'm sure you've had to answer in the past is around the performance of responsible investing strategies. And so do investors have to accept that returns will be lower or the risk level will be higher in order to invest responsibly? No, we we don't believe that's the case. In fact, you know, we think uh, an opportunity for investors is to attach portfolios to large secular growth themes over time. And sustainability is one of the largest ones that we we can think of. Uh, We think about $90 trillion a year has to be spent on environmental and social challenges facing the world. So as an investor, that is a, a massive investment opportunity signal. Uh, and we look for attractive areas there. Over time, we, you know, attaching a portfolio to those powerful trends should deliver strong alpha. And so, uh, Bradley, in terms of what individuals can do, in the media recently been hearing about uh, more and more people who've said that whenever possible, they won't fly. And that's easy to do if you're going from D.C. to New York, but a lot harder with other trips that you might have to take. So, so what are some things that individuals can do in order to abate the impact that they're having on climate change? So there are a lot of things that we can do today, as you say, reducing the amount that we fly, switching to electric vehicles, using public transportation as much as possible, eating less meat. Uh, those are certainly some of the options. Well, tell me more about that. Um, in terms of eating less meat, why, why does that have such a huge impact? So basically the issue is that if you're eating an animal that's eaten another animal or, or a plant-based food, each step up the food chain, so to speak, um, involves inefficiency in the energy. So if you go directly to the plant source, you're able to get those calories and those nutrients essentially more efficiently than you would if you ate, for example, an animal. And there are associated related issues along the lines of a lot of um, uh, raising of cattle, for example, leads to deforestation, which has its own effects on the amount of carbon in the planet, as well as other very undesirable uh, ecosystem effects, of course, such as loss of biodiversity. Um, but I think, you know, a really important point, uh, hearkening back to to what we just heard, is thinking about our power as individuals through the economic signals that we can send as a social species, the signals we can send just by talking about climate change, saying that this is an important issue to us, that we recognize that just about anything that we care about is connected to the climate. Uh, People may not realize it, but public health, uh, very clearly affected by climate change, national security, clearly linked to climate change. So by having conversations with just about anyone, including maybe especially folks who don't yet appreciate the danger and the need to reduce our emissions, the need to think about the risks, um, I think that could be really critical in moving the needle forward. And when we think about that younger generation, I know you guys are at the vanguard of, of thinking this way, as they're picking their colleges, for example, or their first jobs, they may be more and more picking the places that um, already are committed to getting to carbon neutrality or and or 
disclosing all the ways that they can be affected by climate change, developing adaptation plans, and investing in those companies uh, that are thinking about this. So I think that that's the tipping point that gives me optimism, that we are ultimately a social species. It's a little scary to think how quickly some of these tips might happen. Um, There is, I think, potential for pretty catastrophic unwinding of some assets. There are going to be clear winners and losers. But ultimately, I think the narrative is a positive one. Repositioning resources away from vulnerable, risky uh, investments that eventually are going to lose value and also getting people to safer places and better outcomes. And the technology story that, that Dave mentioned is a big part of that. Thank you, Radley. That's that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about the idea of you know our actions sort of having a multiplier effect. Exactly. Uh, that that was fascinating. So, Dave, to you, uh, along the same lines, uh, as investors, should we all be looking to companies like uh, Beyond Meat or other companies that are trying to deal more directly with these issues? What what are some things that we can do, both as investors, but also you know day to day, to um, reduce our impact on climate? Well, I think there's definitely a trend towards investing in research and technology to make agricultural and food production practices more sustainable. So I think this is another example um, of a good news story here in in sustainability. And Beyond Meat is one example, you know, using plant-based protein um, to, uh, you know, both increase food supply while improving resource efficiency because it's much less water intensive and reducing carbon emissions. You know, another example of a more sustainable food production practice is changing animal feed um, to reduce methane emissions. So we were talking earlier about meat production. Um, you know, one thing uh, that comes is methane emissions from cows. That actually represents over 35% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas in terms of its uh, impact on the uh, environment. Um, so we, we have an investment in a company called DSM, which is a specialty chemical company in Europe. Uh, and they have a product called Clean Cow, which is a very catchy name. And it's a feed ingredient. And uh, it actually not only enhances the meat production from the cattle, but it reduces the methane emission out of the cows by 30%. So, you know, I think there's lots of attractive investment opportunities in new technologies to make uh, agricultural practices more sustainable. Thanks, Dave. So, Bradley, maybe before we wrap up, where do do we go from here? What are some of the the big trends that we should be paying attention to as we evaluate how effectively we're all dealing with the risk of climate change going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, the analogy that I use is basically two prize fighters in the late rounds. On the one hand, on the one side, you have climate change happening faster than we thought, and societal vulnerability may be larger than we thought, too. Is that boxer going to deliver a knockout punch before we have time to mobilize around reducing emissions and adaptation. But on the other hand, we have another strong fighter also capable of that knockout tipping point punch. And I think through our conversation, we're hearing that leading minds, um, including on the investing side, I think we're hearing through this conversation that leading minds on the investing side are thinking about the rapid solutions. That's great. How to get those appreciations into our investing strategy. A couple other things to think about on the horizon and maybe ways to go even further. 
thinking about cascading impacts. So it's great to know, for example, which buildings are going to be underwater with sea level rise. But can we think about all the indirect ways that a company's operations could be affected? For example, what's happening in terms of correlation across types of extreme events? With climate change, are we going to see regions that historically maybe weren't correlated with each other suddenly experiencing extreme events at the same time? Are models of insurance, reinsurance, and hedging well-positioned to think about some of those emerging risks? What if the jet stream changes in a way that gives us more simultaneous crop failures in multiple bread baskets, for example? That's a risk that's hard to think about. Thinking about all the ways our supply chains could be affected is another complicated question. Another example of a cascading impact is this legal dimension. We're seeing more and more lawsuits against the fossil fuel companies, especially that have been responsible for so many historical greenhouse gas emissions. When we're having extreme weather events now, there are more lawsuits based on the idea that some percent of the damages, some percent of the flooding, some percent of the drought may be due to those fossil fuel emissions. As we see more of those lawsuits, is that another risk to some companies? Whether the lawsuits are successful or not, is there reputational risk that may grow in the future? That's an example of one of these human dimension aspects. There's a climate piece, but there's a lot of other societal trends going on too. How do we position ourselves to think about all those second order effects as well as I think going to be a key question going forward? Well, Radley, thank you very much. It's Radley Horton, scientist at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Dave, Wheeler, I'd also like to thank you for joining us, Senior Research Analyst of Thematic and Sustainable Equities at Alliance Bernstein. And I'd like to thank the listeners. Uh, hopefully this is one of many conversations to come around climate change on Inspired Investing. If you would like to learn more, please see the link in this episode's description. Also, we look forward to hearing from you. Please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com. You can find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM and rate us on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.